1: new york city and also california this time around this is film spotting streaming video units and coming to you remotely i'm allison wilmore
0: and i'm matt singer and goddamn well i declare have you seen the like trouble ahead trouble behind i set out running but i'll take my time to listen to the river sing sweet songs to rock my soul
1: i got that all out of your system
0: just keep trucking on. Okay, I'm good. On this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we're loading up the van, throwing our shoes out the window, and voyaging deep into the heart of Amir Barlev's epic Grateful Dead documentary, Long Strange Trip.
1: Later in this episode, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all of them with a theme in common with our main review. And since Long Strange Trip is almost four hours long, Matt, you first suggested other really long movies, but I refuse to go along with this attempt to murder us both with a lack of sleep as we attempted to prepare for this episode. Instead, we're going to talk music docs, a forever thriving subgenre with some high highs and some low lows. But before that, we're going to do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand on cable. Matt, what have you got for us this time around? My
0: first pick this time, one of my favorite movies of the first half of the year. I haven't officially made like any kind of best of 2017 so far list yet. Maybe that's something we can talk about on our next episode. But this will almost definitely be on it. It is... T2 Train Spotting, which will be on VOD on June 27th. Danny Boyle and the cast of the original Train Spotting reunite 20 years later for what I thought was a very effective sequel about a drug that is almost as powerful as heroin nostalgia. Uh, <laughs> Ewan McGregor's character Renton returns home to Scotland after 20 years away, and he's looking to reconnect with his old life that he had left behind. And throughout this film, these frankly middle-aged losers are trying to wrestle with the fact that they are getting older, and they still sort of dwell on and want to live in their pasts. And I, I know the movie wasn't loved by everyone, and certainly Train Spotting. I even I would ar- not argue that Train Spotting was crying out for a sequel, even though there was a novel sequel that was written, I think, about a decade ago. But I really felt. Like in a lot of ways, Trainspotting 2, I, I, I guess T2, I it's a terrible title. I, I love the movie, but it really is a, a bad title. Um, I do think it is kind of a great movie of this moment. I think that that urge to wallow in nostalgia, we see that everywhere in popular culture right now. And I thought the way that this movie was explicitly – About that was really interesting. It is also all about Brexit and all of the economic issues around that because these guys are very down on their luck. And when Ewan McGregor returns home to Scotland, he sees this place that is very different. It's globalized. But he and his buddies have very much been left behind by that. And I was also really impressed by the way that uh, this movie really tries hard to in a way, like deflate everything about the original Train and everything that made them look cool the first time around, even though it was in some ways a cautionary tale about heroin use. The style of that movie, the editing, the cinematography, the music, a lot of it did kind of glamorize certain aspects of this world. And I liked the fact that this movie really... Kind of ripped off a lot of the cool varnish, uh, <laughs> and you saw what these guys looked like twenty years later. And it's it, this is not a movie that um, people are going to be like, yeah, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be like. I'm going to put this poster on my dorm wall. So I, th- I thought it was a really effective film. I, I think it's worth checking out. That's T2 Train Spotting uh, available on VOD on June 27th. Next up, available on June 20th, a movie that will not be on my best of the year list, but I think I still had a reasonably fun time with, is Life. It's a pretty shameless ripoff of Alien, about the crew of an international space station, I guess the international space station, including Ryan Reynolds, Jake Gyllenhaal, Rebecca Ferguson from Mission Impossible. Um, They find this tiny little frozen cell of some alien life from Mars, they very stupidly nurture it and wake it up and feed it <laughs> and let it grow. And then they even more stupidly allow it to escape quarantine and pick them off one by one. The characters are very, very dumb. Way too dumb, I-, I felt, for, you know, these are astronauts, physicists, doctors. They should be the smartest people on Earth, but they're very, very dumb. But the sequences with the alien, who is named Calvin, which is never not funny in the movie, the fact that they're terrified of this thing called Calvin. Mm-hmm. Um, no offense to any Calvins out there. Um, the scenes where it breaks out of this prison uh I thought were very effective. And overall, I think there's enough good kind of spooky, scary scenes that make it worth a mild recommendation on demand. That is Life, available on June 20th. And finally, available now, a movie I am dying to see after I missed it in theaters. John Wick, Chapter 2. Keanu Reeves back in action as everyone's favorite dog-loving, head-obliterating assassin. Uh, This time he is traveling through Europe, I know almost nothing else about the movie, and I don't need to know anything else about the movie. Uh, That's frankly enough. Uh, If you saw the first movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Yeah, John Wick, Chapter 2, now playing on demand. What is it about The Grateful Dead?
1: Grateful Dead. The narrative of The Grateful Dead was that we're the same as you. You're the same as us. There is no... Real distinction. The camaraderie and the fellowship
0: in that is so powerful. Yeah, let's have some fun. We were experimenting with
1: on every episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units. We let you choose our main review by voting on one of three options. And in our last episode, we gave you a choice between. War and love of the tie-dyed variety. Uh, You got to choose between Amir Bar-Lev's sprawling Amazon original documentary about the Grateful Dead, Long Strange Trip, John Michael McDonough's dark buddy cop comedy, War on Everyone, on Netflix, and David Michaud's Netflix original movie, War Machine. And for once, love, albeit an extremely complicated and bittersweet sort of love, triumphed with Long Strange Trip coming out on top. Long Strange Trip is directed by Amir Bar-Lev, a documentarian who's made other acclaimed films like My Kid Could Paint That and Happy Valley. But unlike those, Long Strange Trip is a sprawling 238 minutes long, a length worthy of a Grateful Dead show. It played as one long film at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival, but Amazon has given the option of watching it in six chunks of more manageable length. The chapters are chronological, but also tackle particular themes from the bands On the Road and Ken Kesey Sparked Early Days to the first breakup, uh, from the chaos of having a group run by Collective to drug use, and finally, and most interesting to me personally, The culture and almost cult that sprang up around the Grateful Dead in the 80s and 90s, one that left Central member Jerry Garcia in a way trapped by his band's unprecedented success. Now, Matt, there are many, many music docs out there. And some of them, many of them, I would say, are clearly primarily made for an audience of fans. And I'm sure this this doc has both thrilled hardcore deadheads and exasperated some of them for being, at a mere four hours, not completist enough. So I want to know from you first, what is your relationship with The Grateful Dead as a band? And second, do you feel that this film has enough cultural or cinematic oomph to make it worthwhile, even if you've never cared about the dead? <laughs>
0: Okay. So my relationship with The Grateful Dead, it's pretty minimal. I have listened to a bunch of their albums, all the classic albums, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. I've definitely listened to them a bunch of times. I mean, they're certainly not one of my all-time favorite bands, um, but I do know a lot of their best-known songs. I never saw them live. Um I did not see them before the before Jerry Garcia passed away. So I've never seen them live. I've never seen any of the offshoot bands that are were around still around the Dead or the other ones or uh Rat Dog or any of the many different <laughs> side projects and offshoot bands that have existed since Jerry Garcia passed away. So it's a pretty. I would say I'm a very, very, very casual fan. I think they have some lovely songs. I've never been, in general, a big like jam band guy. I'm not a big drug user. I've never been into any of those bands where the whole idea of it is to sort of, you know, maybe take a little something and go to a concert that's like six hours long and and uh, you know spin in place or whatever. Like that's just generally not my particular thing. In terms of the relevance of this movie, or um, its resonance culturally, or whether it's you know it, whether it's it, it I guess does it earn the four hours? Maybe if that's sort of a way of interpreting your question, I I thought it was generally pretty interesting. Um, I. You know, I I would have been fine with a three-hour documentary about <laughs> The Grateful Dead. Certainly there is a lot of material here. Certainly the, the Grateful Dead demand a longer than an 85-minute typical band chronicle movie for sure. And I actually 100% agree that the most interesting part of this movie was the chapter – and I think it's called Deadheads. And I thought that that was – easily the most interesting part and could have almost been its own movie i you know mm-hmm. maybe you could make a 90 minute movie just about the culture around um the grateful dead i don't know uh, why maybe we can talk about why but i while i am certainly not a deadhead i thought that was the best part the other part that i thought was very interesting was the wall of sound portion which was not its mm-hmm. own episode but was a large chunk of one episode where they talk about the tech side of the band and how obsessed they were with sound quality, um, and that they built this gigantic, unheard of, and very famous. Even I knew the wall of sound before watching this film, this gigantic speaker system that they used to tour with in the 70s, and I thought hearing about the the specifics of that was really interesting. But it is a little long. You know, the surviving members of the dead, I didn't find them to be generally particularly Like fascinating interview subjects, Mm -hmm. Um, they don't have a ton to say. Like there wasn't a lot of like surprising stuff in there. They seemed a little guarded in certain ways about Garcia and their choices. I thought some of the interview subjects that were more you know like scholars or just really huge deadheads were a little more interesting. Al Franken. Al Franken is an interesting uh, talking head. But I actually would have liked maybe to hear more from Deadhead since I thought they were really interesting, more from like experts and critics and stuff because I just thought the band itself, their interviews were just not very illuminating or interesting. Uh, The last thing I would say in terms of the overall thing is I thought it was very well put together, very well structured, um, very well edited. They got great archival footage. And I thought Amira Barlev edited all of it really nicely, the graphics, transitions, all that. It's a good-looking movie. It Clearly, they put a lot of time and effort into it. And I think it paid off in a pretty good package. I do think it's a little long if you're not a super hardcore fan, but I think it's w- certainly well-made.
1: Yeah, I definitely was uh, dr- – it felt like it was dragging a lot, and I would say, especially the first three episodes for yeah. me. Not, which is not to say there's, there there is isn't interesting stuff in there. I mean, the wall of sound and especially the ways in which they basically trapped themselves into doing four hours of loading in and loading out each yes. day is, is like hilarious as just in terms of like a commitment to the experience that ends up coming close to like, it sounds like killing their roadies. Yes. Uh, and I think that in, in particular, also listening to uh, the idea that they wanted to be leaderless and be a collective, and that meant that no one, everyone got to weigh in decisions in this huge entourage that they had. Uh, I thought It was funny, you know, and I think that, but like a lot of, especially those first three episodes that kind of are about the band forming, and I, I was just, it was work for me. It was laborious. I really, I thought the movie got more interesting as it went along, and I would agree, It's it's funny that for a band that is, as well documented as the Grateful Dead, right? Like people recorded all of their shows and exchanged tapes, which is like another really fascinating part of the movie that, that in a way, the most interesting parts of the movie are about uh, the people who can't, who, who are like either tangential to the band, who are fans, or about Jerry Garcia who is obviously this, uh, the center of the movie, but also in absence, he can't speak for himself. Right. You know, uh, it's tr- it's true, I would say, that the other band members' interviews are not nearly as interesting. And a lot of that kind of just the history of the dead is so much less interesting than the force that it became. I uh, I mean, I, I understand why it was this long, but I feel like in a way, it's just a lot of work towards getting towards this arc about guys who never wanted to have a traditional music career in terms of success and then ended up, Getting trapped in this, in the strangest kind of most massive success of them all. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, like I thought, I I, I thought the Deadheads chapter was fascinating, and I agree it could be its own movie, and I wanted more of that. There's this, the whole sequence in which someone uh, describes like the Dead shows as a mandala, where like there are different sections. Yeah. The, the deaf fans who are holding balloons so they could hear the vibrations, the spinners. I was like, all of those people, I wanted to hear from all of them. Right. And then that last chapter, which is so sad about and so interesting about Garcia feeling like he couldn't stop, like that he, having created this movement, this phenomenon, had to keep touring and keep touring and keep touring. Yeah, Uh, I I just thought that that was I mean, that ending, I thought was very powerful. It just it, it had to cover a lot of ground to get back there.
0: Yeah, I, we're, we're very much on the same page. I mean, it's true. There's like these incredible ironies that I think are at the core of the band. Like you're saying, these guys who they didn't want to have a leader. They didn't want to have a traditional structure. They never wanted to have a job. They just wanted to, you know, be hippies basically. And then, you know, ended up I mean, the way the movie portrays it, that basically they became like this little cottage industry and there were, I guess, hundreds of people whose livelihoods depended on Jerry Garcia. And and basically the movie portrays it as that responsibility crippled him, killed him, that Mm -hmm. he felt like he could never just take a break. And the responsibility of keeping up this traveling circus and employing all of these people. And then even beyond that, yes, and also just making these fans happy who were so invested in the band that it just the weight of it eventually destroyed him. I mean that's that's un- that's kind of a just this beautiful tragic irony. And the mm-hmm. other one which is explicitly discussed in the sh- in in the the film is the fact that they were obsessed with the live performance and and they never wanted their shows to be the same and they were dedicated to creating these ephemeral ephemeral moments that would just be fleeting that you would find something beautiful and it would just happen one time and never again and that was what made it great and yet they're also the most you know recorded and documented live band in history so that all those ephemeral moments are like recorded and that that's kind of crazy too um yeah there are all these nice little Ironies. I mean, I think even by the end of the movie, I was thinking how, like, the name of the band was this cruel irony that, like, you know, Garcia, like, died for these people, Uh, you know, and I don't know that they necessarily say that the people that were working for the band or the fans were ungrateful, but just that, I don't know, that that essentially, like... They may, they maybe took him for granted or didn't fully appreciate the sacrifice that was being made there. Perhaps right. as as another uh, another um, irony that's sort of all wrapped up in this band's identity. But I also feel, as you said, it's like I think a way a nice way to put it is like, you know, they 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 have that the I guess Jerry Garcia's um songwriting partner is a is a small part of the film and mm. how he's a recluse and he doesn't do interviews and they actually pin him down at a show and you see him and he talks on camera for you know i don't know 20 seconds or whatever <laughs> Uh, about the meaning of one of their songs. And he basically says, well, what's so hard to understand about that After after reciting these inscrutable lyrics? You know, like, it makes perfect sense to me, essentially. And what you do get is, like... You know, they, the 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 Grateful Dead. They were sort of a, a band that didn't want to explain things ever. That they wanted their the audience to be free to interpret whatever they wanted in their songs. And I feel like as interview subjects, they still sort of live by that motto. Like they're not here to tell you what the band meant or what it was all about. They don't really want to be that introspective. Whereas the 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 fans, the critics, the people who are more on the fringes seem much more not only willing to, but invested in explaining the appeal of the band and why they were so dedicated to them and what they meant to themselves and to a whole generation of fans or multiple generations of fans. And so maybe that's why their interviews and the segments on Like Deadheads are more interesting. It's because those people have clearly invested much more thought and want to talk about it. Whereas the band themselves, they're certainly proud of what they made. They dedicated their lives to it but they they like they're just their thing is like letting the music speak for itself and that was another thing that i felt about this movie was that while it's wall-to-wall dead music there's not like a lot about talking about individual songs or or really like basking in live performances i don't know this for certain but it often seemed to me like the video that we're seeing of live performances isn't synced up with the music they found, you know, obviously they found maybe they found recordings even of the same show as the video. But to me, they looked like silent films that were just matched up as best they could with with the uh, audio. And, you know, you don't really get a sense that you're really basking in uh, m- magical live musical moments. Um, The music sounds pretty good, uh, but I didn't really you know, it's not like a great chronicle of a live band in the way that, you know, great concert films are. I didn't think. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I think that, you know, there are a lot of times when a familiar dead song comes on and you get goosebumps, but it's not a live performance, you know, right. it's, it's usually there on the soundtrack or, or if it is a live performance, it's not the one that we're watching. Uh, yeah. And I didn't, I mean... I don't know if that was a choice made because of just like what footage was available, like in terms of archival footage. Uh, there's definitely a story early on about uh, the dead sabotaging an attempt to make a film, right. uh, a concert film, by dosing the crew with acid. Uh, but I, yeah, I did feel like in some way the shows, the magic of the shows seemed like it was almost impossible to capture. On screen, and so they didn't try, you know. That instead, uh, a lot of the best footage of their shows is uh, involves the moments when the camera is turned on the the audience, and that when you see all of these people listening and raptured, and dancing and just and singing along, I, I think that there is something there that is unique and that is very moving. Just the degree the, the degree to which this was, as as one of the band members says, it was church. You know that that people were were having this spiritual experience, and I, I mean that it's it's uh, I, I feel like that really also lines up with the ways in which uh, they almost like loved Jerry Garcia to death. They needed him so badly that no one intervened when he got back on uh, heroin, and no one no one kind of seemed to step in to be like, clearly he's burnt out, like you know that they. They needed him to give everything, mm-hmm. um, and that, and, and in some ways, the the audience was more important in that dynamic, especially as the film goes along, than than what the band was doing on stage. You know, I think that I, they're watching this film. Absolutely, like what it enforced for me is that, uh, for me personally, Deadheads are more interesting. The phenomenon of Deadheads is more interesting than the Grateful Dead you know, because the Grateful Dead is a band and they're not quite my taste. But uh, I I think that there are a lot of stories you can tell about bands and they very rarely show you something that new. Mm -hmm. Whereas the idea of this traveling mobile city of people all attached to a simulacrum of this particular era that the dead represented going into the 80s, into the 90s. uh, I think that is fascinating. And I, I think there's a reason that those parts of the film are some of the best. You know, that you are it's like this era will never die, even when people are coming who never experienced it, (laughs) you know, that it's the idea of this of this kind of hippie era, the idea of all of the ideals that it represents, that it could keep going forever if you just showed up at the parking lot of a dead show.
0: Yeah. Oh, I think it also speaks to that that fascination where, like you said, we we are neither of us huge Grateful Dead fans. So there's something very interesting to us. Who, people who are familiar with the band have listened to their music but don't quite get it in that same way to see the people who for whom this is their everything this is mm-hmm. their obsession this is their singular thing this is what they they live and die for is the band so to, you know and to see that passion i feel like you know it's it's like any subculture documentary when you see a, a film about people who are obsessed you know um uh, comic book collectors or theater, you know, theater goers or Cinemania. Cinemania. Yeah. I think there's a similarity there or, you know, like people who are into baseball cards or whatever it is where I, I personally, I'm just very interested in, in stuff like that in learning about people who have dedicated their lives to this very narrow thing. And like, especially with the grateful dead where it's, it's, you know, it's not like they have a massive catalog of, you know, songs. It's, it's about hearing those couple of songs that you love a hundred different times in a hundred different ways and being super attuned to, oh, the guitar solo in this version from 72 versus the drum part in this concert from 79. Like, that to me is very interesting. Whereas, you know, even the, you know, there's, I guess there's some conflict in the band, but it seems like they're, the way the movie portrays it, you know, it's not like, oh, I hated, Bob or Phil and Jerry stopped getting along. They never spoke to each other, or you know obviously they they were upset when Jerry died but you don't really they don't really even talk about that that much you know it's like there's not a ton of internal drama, and it's almost like their the structure of the band and their sort of communal hippie vibe almost prevented there from being that like you know that there wasn't somebody to take charge and to tell Jerry, "You need to stop. You need to take a break." You know that it's they were almost anti drama in that way, and so in some sense, that the the nature of the band resists the things that would make this a more interesting documentary, perhaps. But
1: yeah, yeah, I would. I mean, I I, I think that is what I missed a lot is that none of them, even at one point, I mean, they lose. More than one keyboardist, right? Like more than one keyboard player dies, and there's one point where you know uh, Brett Midland, who is they say was essential to the the kind of sound of the band in the '80s, he dies, and it's so kind of like offhandedly mentioned. Yeah, and you're like in in a normal in the kind of normal situation of a, of a rock documentary, it would at least be explored as to what that meant and like how it happened. And instead they're kind of like, well, when, when Brent died and it goes on in a way, that's a little odd. Uh, I did want to say one more thing before we wrap this up, which is that there is, uh, there is an irony to the fact that this band uh, who became like famous for this, uh, like, their continuing sensibility that became a retro sensibility right over the years that they were way ahead of their time in terms of what has become of like music profitability in that uh you know when 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 they talk about how uh it was the best marketing they could possibly do to let people exchange like record their music and exchange it for free and they would come to their shows i mean that's pretty much how music works now, yes. right? <laughs> that like, you can't count on people buying your albums and that being the way you make money, that you have to tour all the time, uh, you know, even though sometimes that just wears you down. And so I thought it was really, that was like, there's something very pointed about that, that they had basically skipped ahead to something that uh, the rest of the music industry would would come around to uh, eventually themselves.
0: Right. And basically it was no grand design as they say in the film. They just as I think as one of them puts it, we just didn't want to be cops. That was yeah. essentially the the um the the motivation, but you're absolutely right. They they basically invented the business model of the modern music business. <laughs> which is pretty well, funny for The Grateful Dead.
1: Right. Well, uh that is Long Strange Trip. I guess that's like a tentative thumbs up from both of us.
0: Yeah, mild. I'd say mild, mild. recommendation. Yeah, mild
1: thumbs I would say up. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't know if chemical enhancement makes this better the way <laughs> so many people in the film seem to suggest that it is the best way to listen to the dead <laughs> music. But you can find it and figure it out yourself on Amazon Prime. Long distance right, run out, you stand in there for? slow so and in the floor. Play cold music from the barroom floor. Even the things that you've done. There's a dragon. All right, we're going to talk
0: about music documentaries. I think we've we've kind of like danced around this topic before. We have done documentaries about artists and I know one of the movies that I was even looking at possibly doing um Allison had recommended on that episode, which was Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, seemed like a really good pick for this. But we have um, talked about that before. That movie is available on Netflix if you haven't seen it or want to revisit it. And another movie that I love is – I think is actually the superior version of Long Strange Trip in that it's about one band – and it's like I think that one's like three hours long, maybe three and a half. Mm-hmm. it's not as long as this, but it's a and, and it is the antithesis of Long Strange Strip in terms of the band all hate each other, and there's tons of <laughs> drama, and that is history of the Eagles. If yes. you want to see a long documentary about a band where the band just loves to hate each other and say horrible things about each other, and when people drop out of the band, it's all drama and anger and and snippiness check out that film it is really great if you're just like into that if if long strange trip if you watch it and you're like yeah there's not a lot here in terms of like drama and tension that's a good one to check out because it nonstop. that but we have talked about that one before as well so uh that is not one of my picks either is there anything uh, you want to say allison before we get to our picks
1: sure uh i think that that is definitely like rawness is the thing that i always want right in a in a music documentary, there is a basically a cottage industry now, almost every band that has a following, almost every music scene that has a following has had a documentary made about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other day I was starting to watch <laughs> Turn It Around, the story of East Bay Punk, wow. a huge personal interest to me as someone who grew up in the, that scene, but I would never presume that anyone outside of it Would care, right? You know, I think that so many films are made with a presumption that you already know why what you're watching is important, right? Mm -hmm. And I do think that that's one of the things that's less interesting about music docs, also especially when they're authorized, which I mean, it puts you in a weird. The more famous a band is or an artist is, the more important it is to get an authorized doc to have access to their music. But the more likely that is to lead you to a movie that kind of smooths over all of the rough edges, you know?
0: Yeah, I think more and more you're getting those like authorized documentaries because I think that, uh, you know, it's just another way to package your band, to make some money, to encourage people to come to your live shows. Um, you know,
1: it's right. so stick on on as like a, it's like a DVD extra almost. Right. You know? I mean
0: the history of the Eagles documentary part of what makes it amazing is that I'm pretty sure that is an authorized documentary. Right. But they
1: didn't care. They and didn't that's, care. Like, that's right. what I want. You know, I it made me like when we talked about this, it made me think of the uh, opening night film of this year's Tribeca Film Festival was something called Clive Davis The Soundtrack of Our Lives. And certainly Clive Davis who is a famous uh record producer has uh, a very storied life but this movie is so uh careful about everything that you would think that clive davis a record producer you know an executive has never ever taken a wrong step in his entire life right <laughs> you know and it's so kind of like careful uh, it, it was exasperating um, and I will say like the other side of that is that there are times when something like my, one of my favorite music docs and certainly my favorite, like hip hop centric doc is the Carter by Adam Bala about Lil uh, Wayne mm-hmm. and, and Lil Wayne kind of famously, uh, after not being able to get final cut on it himself, right. tried to block the documentary from playing at Sundance and it did play at Sundance and was available online for a while. It's not available online, online anymore. So otherwise I would have talked about it here, but it's all because it shows him in a light that he felt like he couldn't control. Right. Uh, The one last thing I'll say about music docs is that I do think for me, like the measure is either, do they have worth as a document of a cultural moment, like say Woodstock, do they have worth as a film and as or as a story like say Anvil, the story of Anvil about a, a band I had never heard of until I watched that movie. Or you know maybe they have both like give me shelter. Uh, I think that that is the main my main measure for like when a music doc is actually good and not just kind of feeding into my existing fandom. Mm-hmm. I think. But that, what's your first pick?
0: My first pick. I think those are great criteria to judge them by though. I just want to say that. So my first pick is one of my all time favorite documentaries. I mean a music documentary but any kind of documentary. This is a, a favorite film of mine and I I looked it up. It didn't look like we had talked about it on the podcast before. I couldn't find any evidence of it online, although it did it did look like Allison you recommended its predecessor once on the show. Um it is The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years, which uh is available right now for rent or if you have a stars uh, a subscription on your cable, or I guess they have an app now as well. If you have Stars, it is available right now on Stars. And this is uh, the middle part of a documentary trilogy about the Los Angeles music scene of the '80s and I guess the early '90s by Penelope Spears, who went on to direct Wayne's World and a bunch of good movies. Uh, The first film is about punk rock. That was the one I think Allison recommended on the show at some point. The third film is about gutter punk, and I think it's about homeless kids in L.A. The middle film, which is the one that I'm specifically recommending, is about heavy metal. And uh, as Gene Simmons says in the first lines of the movie, this movie is about groups, metal, guitars, girls, all that stuff – But ultimately, the movie is only half the story because half the true magic is about the fans. The most vocal fans of all time are heavy metal fans. They're the best. I salute them. So it is this kind of work of almost – I would say ethnography, but almost like sarcastic ethnography. Like (laughs) it doesn't have a a story per se. There are no main characters. There's no like – Battle of the Bands or one particular group that it's following, like Anvil. Um, You know, watching it again last night, it almost reminded me of like an Altman movie. It is like this survey of this time and this place and this scene um, that was populated by these fascinating outlandish figures. And it has interviews with some of the, at the time, the biggest bands on the planet, including... Uh, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry from Aerosmith, Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley from Kiss, but it also has less famous bands, too, some up-and-coming musicians, some of whom did go on to fairly successful careers, some kind of flash in the pan, one-hit wonders, some made it bigger, and then there are some bands that really never made it at all. And what I love about this film is how unguarded and honest these people are, sometimes clearly to a fault. Like... I don't know what it was about Penelope Spears that she did or her aura or what she how she presented herself to these people to get them so willing to talk to her but whatever it was it it worked because they talk about the music and the scene and their genitals and just they're they're just very silly and sleazy and honest and It's something that I think is very rare in documentaries where you just – these people do not seem like they are concerned about how they come off in this film in a way that's very refreshing. And I also love the eclectic kind of locations of the talking head interviews. It's not just people sitting in rooms uh, talking. Um, She interviews Ozzy Osbourne in his bathrobe as he cooks breakfast. She interviews Paul Stanley lying in a bed – With three women like draped all over him. Um, One of the guys, Chris Holmes from Wasp is doing an interview floating in a pool on a raft, clearly drunk out of his mind. It's it's really something. And I. I. I am not a huge metal fan. I think there are some really good performances in this movie where you do get a sense, unlike Long Strange Trip, of kind of like the excitement, the energy of these live shows. They're very well shot. They're very well edited. Um, And I do feel like this movie is the kind of thing that holds up as a document, as, again, like as ethnography, a really good look at this time and this place. And I was reading after I rewatched it that some of this stuff was staged like – the Ozzy Osbourne scenes—it wasn't really his kitchen and stuff like that—but
1: oh, those scenes are like some of the best in that movie. Though. Oh, they're
0: fantastic! <laughs> I think that's where you really—you know—this movie has what you know the infamous Werner Herzog, you know, ecstatic truth. Um, mm-hmm. That that kind of gets at something—that it is um, something larger than the minutia of actual documentary—and it really does have the heavy metal scene wrapped up in like ninety very entertaining minutes. And I very, very highly recommend it. It is The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years, available for rent or on Stars.
1: And actually, that movie, all three of that trilogy, they're all streaming on Fandor right now. Ah. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. As is uh, my pick, which I think, in speaking to that ecstatic truth, and also to the idea that I think that, that that movie gets at, which is the degree to which... Rock stardom is uh, a performance, you know, as as a life choice, as well as it is um, kind of an aspirational goal. Uh, It's something that plays in very uh, largely into this film, which is called Dig. It is Andy Timiner's 2001 documentary about two bands, uh, the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre, uh, who started off as kind of friends and then became rivals and maybe even enemies at the end. Uh, in the '90s indie rock scene, the Dandy Warhols are still are still together. They're a Portland-based band led by Courtney Taylor Taylor. Uh, they're maybe best known for "Bohemian Like You" or "We Used to Be Friends." The Brian Jonestown Massacre is not best known for any particular track. I don't think they ever had a kind of mainstream breakout, though they released many, many albums and I think continue to release albums. Uh, as much as they lived anywhere, they're sort of based in San Francisco and are led by Anton Newcomb. Uh, and the relationship between the two frontmen is the fascinating core of this film. Uh, Taylor Taylor and Newcomb are both good looking charismatic would-be rock stars who are intent on taking over the world. And they both have qualities that the other one envies. Uh, Taylor Taylor is very well-adjusted actually beneath the kind of facade of cool. He's very industrious, uh, very ambitious, and very calculating. Uh, Newcomb is probably the better musician He's a kind of brilliant musician. He's much more genuine, less capable of playing the game. And he is maddeningly, self-defeatingly erratic and is prone to these grand acts of self-sabotage. There's one scene uh, in which the band gets this big shot at potential fame and they get put in this showcase. and, And Newcomb basically blows it up. He starts yelling at one of the band members that he's not playing right. Uh, They get in a fight on stage, and he stalks off, and then you see him later outside yelling like, you broke my sitar, which is a great line, a great line. Um, You know, It doesn't matter that he's better. uh, If he can't be trusted to show up, to remain sober enough to hold things together, to not drive away his fellow bandmates, um, like, he's a mess. He is a brilliant, uh, totally very watchable mess. Whereas Taylor Taylor treats Newcomb's not always admirable rock star qualities in this way that's uh almost vampiric. Uh, there is this moment where the Dandy Warhols show up at the wreck of a house in Los Angeles that the Brian Joan- Jonestown massacre has been living in in order to do a photo shoot unannounced in the the kind of uh disaster that is the house after a party, you know, like they are literally taking the chaos of the Brian's jo- Brian Jones Town massacres life in order to use it as the backdrop of a photo shoot. Um, and I think that, uh, regardless, this is one of those films where it doesn't matter if you like these bands. So I did, I liked both bands. I have seen the Dandy Warhols multiple times. Uh, I liked them a lot in the, uh, when I was in college and around those days I've seen the Brian Jones Town massacre. Um, but they, uh, it feels like, uh, this moment that really maybe a turning point for when rock star excess and kind of erratic genius was something you worked around, you know that like someone could be a mess, someone could be even Jerry Garcia right uh on heroin, and people would manage it because it made too much business sense to not, mm-hmm. and I think the current moment we're at, whereas stardom comes from a lot of savvy and brand management. You know, I don't think that Newcomb comes off terribly well in this movie, but then neither does Daylor Taylor. Like he, he is, uh, I think he is very self-aware of rockstar cool in a way that is uh, is extremely uncool <laughs> but is is makes for a great movie uh, I definitely recommend this one it is dig and it is available on Fandor
0: that's a great pick definitely I would echo your sentiments that you you don't need to be a fan of those bands to enjoy that one and there is uh there's plenty of drama in that one as well yeah okay my second pick is uh you know you it's funny you mentioned uh, the opening night film I guess at this year's. Tribeca Film Festival. My next pick is a little documentary I saw a couple of years ago at Tribeca, which um, does have a lot of music docs. Um, This film did get acquired by Sundance. It had a very quiet release. Seems like something that flew very much under the radar, which I guess is maybe a little fitting given its subject. It's called Orion, the Man Who Would Be King. And this guy, Orion, uh, lived this fascinating life, and it is this incredible story, like Allison was saying earlier. Are these films great stories? This one definitely is an incredible story, which I knew absolutely nothing about before the film. Uh, this guy, Orion, he was an aspiring singer from Alabama who had a voice that sounded just like Elvis. Um, they play his music in the movie, and you go, that's got to be Elvis. No, that was this guy. Jimmy Ellis was his his name. Uh, he grew up in rural Alabama where... Being in the music industry was very much looked down on as, you know, silly, frivolous, whatever you want to say. He came from, I think, like a farming family, and he was expected to sort of just do that with his life. And it took him many years to kind of break away and even attempt to make a go of it in the music industry. And by the time he did, he was a little bit older. He was like in his early 30s. And he was just a guy who sounded a lot like Elvis. Well, at this point, there already was an Elvis. So it's like, what is there for Jimmy to do? This is the mid 70s. This is long before anything like American Idol. But I think you could guarantee Jimmy would have been the kind of guy who would have gone on a show like that. But this was well before it existed. But then Elvis died, and the owner of Sun Records at the time, which had been Elvis's record label when he was just uh, starting out, becoming huge, hatched this idea that was based around this book. Uh, This woman, Gail Brewer Giorgio, wrote this book called Orion, basically like a Romana clef about Elvis, where the Elvis character, who was named Orion, faked his own death because he was sick of being famous. And so the idea that Some of these producers and songwriters hit on was like, let's turn the Orion from the novel into a real guy. Let's put him on stage and take him on the road. And they got Jimmy Ellis to play Orion. He would tour the country and he wore a mask. And when he was in interviews and, and things, he would claim, oh, I'm Orion. he wouldn't reveal his real name. And in publicity, they strongly hinted, although they never said it, that maybe this guy is really Elvis, but Elvis faked his own death, which, of course, people did believe (laughs) that some people really became obsessed with the idea that Elvis had faked his own death. And so this kind of fed into it. And if you are listening to me now and you want to look it up, you can look it up. I mean, Jimmy Ellis doesn't necessarily look like Elvis but with the mask and in the rhinestone jumpsuit and he sounds just like him it's like it's just enough to like make you believe or want to believe and it's an incredible story and it has great interviews the film does with many of the people in Ellis's life it does have old uh, archival interviews with Ellis who died before the movie was made and what I Enjoyed about this was besides just the fact that it's a great story, is you know, a lot of documentaries, music documentaries, and even music documentary shows like when we were teenagers, behind the music was like ubiquitous. There were dozens, maybe hundreds of episodes, and I watched Mm -hmm. a ton of them, and they all have the same basic arc. Early success and then excess, drugs, women, whatever, and then, you know, the decline and then the inevitable comeback. And that is not the story of Orion. This is a very different sort of arc than you often see in a music documentary. And it's basically. uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but it's basically like a tragedy, uh, almost like in the like Greek sense or the ancient classical sense about a guy who got exactly what he wanted, a music career, a little bit of fame, uh, women. He was, had a he had a real taste for the ladies as we learn in this film. Um, but that he got everything he wanted, but it kind of, it didn't make him happy. And it wasn't when he got it, it wasn't quite what he thought it would be and he had to wear this mask everywhere and he wasn't allowed to just be himself and a lot of people thought he was kind of a joke because he was playing off of Elvis's death and trying to kind of seem like, you know, he was Elvis or an Elvis impersonator or whatever and all of that and how it sort of ruined him in certain ways I think is very interesting and and very sad. I guess the movie is a little bit like something like a searching for Sugar Man, you know, but I actually like this movie better than that one. And I think it's very effective, kind of a cautionary tale about show business. The director is a, a woman named Jeannie Finlay, who has a very, I think, a very warm and kind of empathetic approach that I appreciate. She also directed this very good documentary that I saw, I think it was at South by uh, quite a few years ago now, called Sounded Out, which was about one of the last surviving record stores in england which i also would recommend so if this movie that if you you know if it sounds interesting i think you would you should check it out it's it's very very uh interesting story it's well done it is orion the man who would be king and it is available right now on netflix
1: all right for my second pick i also went with a film that doesn't fit into that very kind of uh, codified behind the music arc that I think so many music documentaries have absorbed mm-hmm. now. This like rise, act of hubris, fall, and then redemption kind of uh, curve. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't work at all. It's a it's a film that I have mentioned before, but wanted to talk about in a little more depth. It is A Poem is a Naked Person, and it is available for streaming on Filmstruck. Uh, and I think that, you know, in that that kind of arc that is like half worshipful and half informative, uh, the like the the kind of traditional music doc uh, makes an argument for the importance of its subject. And what I love about this film is that this film makes no active argument at all, and yet absolutely will sell you on how uh, just charismatic and electric and talented Leon Russell, its subject is. It was directed by Les Blank, uh, who kind of has famously made many docs about musicians and regional music scenes, in addition to making docs about Werner Herzog eating his shoe and making Fitzcarraldo. Uh, Blank made movies about Lightning Hopkins, about Nortenio performers, about Polka, about Francisco Aguabella. Uh, This film was uh, actually paid for in part alongside uh, along with a business partner by Russell who brought blank in for a few years. Uh, He shot this film from 72 to 74 only for music clearance issues and creative disagreements to prevent the release of the movie for years and years and years, not until 2015 did this movie actually screen at South by Southwest, uh, which is where I saw it uh, with Russell who has since passed away showing up. So it was a kind of, it was a really neat screening to get to go to. But I, I think what's also really neat about this film is how much, it is freed from a lot of the conventions of music documentaries. It is so not 2015-ish. It plunges you into the life at Russell's Grand Lake, Oklahoma, recording studio. Uh, it shows you all kinds of, in addition to showing you like rehearsals and performances and uh, just the life of the studio, it like dig- digresses into all kinds of odd things. Um, it, it digresses into showing an artist painting a mural inside Russell's empty swimming pool. Into a snake eating a chick, uh, into all kinds of just like freak out oddness. In you know the the it tries to capture a feeling rather than to capture a particular narrative. Uh, it does include performance footage of Russell that uh, who died in 2016. That is just so electric. Um, he is really the silver foxiest dude. Uh, <laughs> really vibrant in his denim and his American flag hat, just pounding on the piano keys in a concert and howling into a mic. Uh, you know, if dig is an attempt to capture what it is like to build rock stardom up self-consciously from the ground, I would say a poem as a naked person is an attempt to just do this wild, weird, impressionistic capturing, uh, of someone's aura who has that quality. Um, It just tries to get at what it's like when someone just seems like they're larger than life, you know, and someone who is not necessarily in a place that is uh, not necessarily somewhere where uh, like New York or L.A., like going through the typical structures of show business. Like this is his home. Uh, And I will say as someone who knew Russell's music a bit, but had never uh, been particularly well versed in it, it had me chasing it down. I think that which is I, I think one of the, the best things I can say about this, which is that it sells you on someone even when it isn't trying to. It's a really neat film and really just like a time capsule. I, you know, if I sing movies as like cinematically interesting or culturally inter- interesting, A Poem as a Naked Person is both. And it is available for streaming on Filmstrip. Uh,
0: goodbye, Joe. We gotta go the to a on the battle A dear big
1: You are about to become the biggest brand in racing.
0: Movie deals, infomercials, product endorsements. Ciao! You think you're famous
1: now? <laughs> we'll be rich beyond belief.
0: Mr. Sterling, what is this about? Your legacy. Every time you lose, you damage yourself. All right. uh, Let's talk about some new movies very briefly here before we get to Behind the 8-Ball. The big movie in theaters last weekend, as we are recording this, was Cars 3, the third installment, and I think it's safe to say, Allison, the most beloved Pixar franchise of them all. Right. (laughs)
1: Right. Yeah, definitely people fall over themselves people, to, to talk about how wonderful Cars the franchise is. People
0: love Cars. They really like Cars too. They think it is the apex of Pixar's oeuvre. So mm. Cars 3, as you might expect, was was met with huge enthusiasm. But, but, but what did you think, Allison?
1: <laughs> well, I feel like, and I've said this on Twitter – Cars, saying that Cars 3 is the best of the Cars franchise is not the same thing as saying it is a good movie, and I do not think it is a good movie. I do feel like, in in a weird way, the Cars movies feel like weird parodies of a Pixar movie that include attempts at poignance that feel very hackneyed. That include, like, I mean, in this case, this film is like about mortality, but in a way that doesn't feel to me any kind of meaningful or poignant. It just feels. Uh, like bait to, to to get people to write about how this is the most, you know, meaningful Cars movie so far.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I I did I liked it more than you did. I thought it was a pretty decent film. I do think it is the best of the three Cars movies. Um, and I, you know, I don't think it's. I still don't think it's great. I still think it is you know, middling Pixar at best. It is certainly not in the upper tier of what the studio has done and hopefully will do in the future. But I did think that it was a much, much better film than the second one and, and maybe slightly better than the first one. And I have to say that I, at the, while I did find the... Uh, the story here once you hear what it's about which is that Lightning McQueen the red race car Owen Wilson's character he's getting older and um, you know it's kind of like a Rocky Three comeback story where he's in a uh, an accident and then he's he's trying to have, uh, engineer this comeback with the help of a trainer uh, this uh, female trainer uh, voiced by Cristela Alonso Cruz Ramirez I believe is the name of that car sort of once you know the the premise it's I found it sort of a little, in some ways, obvious where it was going to go ultimately, but I did, I have to admit, I did kind of get wrapped up in it, and I, I actually kind of uh, got a little wrapped up emotionally in the in the final act of the movie. I thought that the middle part of it was was pretty dull. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the humor of uh, Pixar movies, the, the Cars franchise is definitely uh, as weak as it gets, but I did feel like they at least worked up to an ending that felt... It felt Pixar-y to me in terms of the way it was sort of hopeful and sort of wistful and nostalgic and melancholic. It it it, it got me in the way that good Pixar movies uh, get me, and so I you know, and I appreciated the fact that you know I think they did recognize the second movie did not work. And you do see a very different film here. Um, and so, you know, I feel like I'm still not a huge fan of the Cars franchise. I'm endlessly fascinated by that world, which makes no sense and is kind of insane. But I did I didn't dislike this one. I had a pleasant time watching it.
1: I found the ending pandering and tiring tiresome. Uh-oh. But I will say it raises a lot of questions about how a Cars film can be so much about mortality. You're like, they're also cars. Right. Where, where, what is the life cycle of a car in, yes. a car, in the world of cars?
0: Yes, it's true. Uh, One of the, you know, the Paul Hudson, car- uh, Paul Newman okay. character, excuse me, he plays Doc Hudson. That character died in between Cars 1 and Cars 2. They've never explained how he died. And you're like, how does a car die? And then how you is go, a car
1: born? How was a car
0: born? We never see baby cars.
1: Yeah, this is right, especially when this is a movie that's sort of it's almost about a Gen X car dealing with a millennial car.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think that's exactly what it's about. There's yeah. no question that there is a, a lot of sort of I mean, to me, I I think it's a it's a movie that like sort of a father makes uh, about his daughters or trying to relate to his daughters in some ways. That's sort of the vibe that I got from it. Um so maybe that's yeah. why I I I related to it a little <laughs> bit. I mean, look, I, let's. I'm not. I'm not going to pretend like I'm not in the tank for that. No pun intended. But um, yeah, I think that's definitely one of the things they're going for. You might not. You might think it is pandering or it doesn't work, but I, I think mm-hmm. that's definitely deliberate.
1: All right. Well, really quickly, just wanted to give a mention to Rough Nights, which yes. is also in theaters now. You have not seen this, Matt. I missed it. I have seen it. Uh, I think that it is one of those movies that is filled with all of these actors that I like so much. And that has a premise that if you've seen the trailer, you know, uh, in which these characters go out on a bachelorette party and end up accidentally killing a, a male stripper. It's
0: very that bad it, things.
1: Yeah, it, it is a movie that feels almost like a, like a writing exercise. Like, how can we get out of this very dark thing that happens and I do not feel that it pulls it off that it it, it is a very though I, I laughed at parts I think that it is this very awkward combination of still like female friendship movie that in, in in that wants you to take it seriously as a kind of ode to how women try and stay close when their lives take them in different directions but also about yeah like oh we killed someone and also none of us want to call the police because we want to protect our lives. <laughs> uh, and I think that if you're going to have that premise, you need to be harsher on it's on your characters than this movie is. Uh, I do not think that it is dark enough in terms of its treatment of its, its, its main ensemble to really justify the premise that it has. Um, But yeah, rough night. Uh, I'm kind of like a shruggy on that. I I feel different ways about it, but I do not think that it is in any way a wholehearted success.
0: Now, if that had had some talking cars in it, cars had accidentally killed another car, and had to cover it up.
1: You know that all I, uh, all I want from any movie is for it to end with humanity being extinct and taken over by sentient cars. I mean – I just don't want to see a movie set in the world of that car. Of
0: right. You just want the car's prequel. That's all you
1: yeah, want. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah.
0: All right, let's get to uh, behind the eight ball where we wrap up the show with some recommendations of new releases on streaming. We give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film that each of us has chosen blindly by number from each other's My Lists on Netflix. Allison, uh, would you like to go first this time? Sure, I'll go first. All right. Well, why don't you start with three new releases on streaming?
1: Okay. Uh, Ahead of Bong Joon-ho's Netflix original movie, Okja, which is premiering soon, Netflix has added two more of Bong's films in addition to The Host, uh, which was already on there. One is the earlier film Barking Dogs Never Bite, and the other is Mother, my recommendation, my favorite of his films, uh, and a film that makes in particular A brilliant transition from having the seemingly jokey premise of a doting single mother turned amateur detective trying to clear her developmentally disabled son, who's been accused of murder, to becoming this really biting, dark statement about maternal love. Uh, It is really wonderful. Uh, Mother, that is on Netflix. Also new to Netflix is *Daughters of the Dust*. This is Julie Dash's 1991 film about a Gullah family at the turn of the century preparing to leave their home on one of South Carolina's sea islands to look for opportunities on the mainland. Was a landmark at its time. It was the first film from a black female director to get a national theatrical release, and has since come back into uh, the kind of mainstream attention thanks to Beyonce's Lemonade, which quoted some of its visuals, uh, leading to an already planned restoration and re-release to get moved up. And now you can watch it on Netflix. It is stunningly gorgeous. Finally, new to Sundance now is Cousin Bobby. This is a 1992 documentary from the late Jonathan Demme about his cousin, Robert Castle, Who was an Episcopalian priest who became a civil rights activist, sometimes angering the church. Uh, This doc about his life led him to getting parts in movies, actually, afterwards, including Demi's Own Philadelphia, also Big Night, uh, and Beloved. That is Cousin Bobby. It is on Sundance now.
0: All right. How about two listener recommendations?
1: First up, we have one from Tyler from Los Angeles. Hey there, Tyler. Uh, He writes, there's a Korean horror film that was released last year that's new to Netflix entitled Train to Busan. The film comes from Wellgo, USA, uh, pushes out films to U.S. audiences such as 2015's The Assassin, the Ip Mon Trilogy starring Donnie Yen, and more recently, The Wailing. Why should people watch Train to Busan, you might ask? Well, if Snowpiercer and Dawn of the Dead had a baby, Train to Busan would be the delightful offspring. While the zombie genre is tired, thanks to AMC's The Walking Dead, Train to Busan feels fresh, despite the many, many zombies that appear in the film, and all played by people and not CGI hordes like in World War Z. What elevates this zombie epic from your run-of-the-mill B-movie zombie feature is its ever-increasing stakes and inventiveness. Every encounter with the undead is terrifyingly different, with a solution that works best for the situation that feels thought out by real people— Hope you enjoy, and thanks for the great podcast. Uh, thank you for that note, Tyler. I also wanted to mention uh, Soul Station, which is an animated prequel to um, Train to Busan, is available on for rent now, and is I will say maybe even darker <laughs> than uh, Train to Busan, and is all set in Seoul where the zo- where there is the zombie outbreak uh, right in the downtown. All right, and then we have a recommendation from Patrick, who writes, Disney's Pete's Dragon remake is new to Netflix, and it's absolutely wonderful. Its similarities to the 1977 film begin and end with the movies having a kid named Pete, who is friends with a dragon, which actually works in the 2016 film's favor. It's gentler, more leisurely paced. It doesn't condescend. It's the type of family movie that rarely gets made now, and I hope people discover it now that it's on Netflix. Thank you for that, Patrick.
0: Okay, and how about
1: one film chosen blindly by number from your my list? Well, you gave me number 13. That is Love True. Uh, that's a 2016 doc from Alma Haral, who is a music video director and who also made the documentary Bombay Beach. Um, which was this kind of surreal documentary about this impoverished community on the Salton Sea. It used some choreography in it. It was a movie that I had very complicated feelings about. Um, it was very beautiful. It also felt to me a little condescending. Uh, and so I, um, I added this one, which is her new film to my my list, just because I, it's rare that a, that a documentary kind of provokes such strong feelings in me. Uh, this one looks at different subjects in order to explore the topic of love. Uh, and Shia LaBeouf was the executive producer. So there's an interesting random combination of talents there. Alright, Matt, are you ready? Yes. All right, give me three new releases.
0: First up, available on both Amazon Prime and Hulu is probably my favorite blockbuster of 2016. Star Trek Beyond, the third film in the rebooted Star Trek franchise with the crew of the Enterprise attacked by an alien played by Idris Elba, and then stranded on a remote planet. Some great action and adventure, great camaraderie with the crew, and I think a very clever meta meditation on why we still need Star Trek, which was made uh, just in time for the franchise's 50th anniversary last year. So that's Star Trek Beyond. It's on Hulu and on Amazon. Next up, another very good sequel that reckons with its sequel-ness and whether it deserves to exist. Ocean's 12. Uh, Steven Soderbergh, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, the rest of the gangs follow up to their extremely popular remake of the old Rat Pack heist movie. Ocean's 12 was probably the least commercial, the least conventional of the Ocean's Trilogy that Soderbergh made, uh, probably the least liked, I think, widely, but I really love it for all of its weird touches, strange digressions, and the way it subverts all your expectations um, for what a movie like this should be, and 100% for it being about how hard it is to make a great sequel. So that's Ocean's 12 on Amazon Prime, and finally, also on Amazon Prime, on June 22nd, Another outstanding movie from 2016 that probably didn't get as much attention as it deserved, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson, which is about a bus driver named Patterson, uh, played by Adam Driver, who lives in Patterson, New Jersey, and writes poetry in his spare time. It's structured as a, a week in his life, driving and writing and reading and thinking and hanging out with his wonderful wife and their not entirely wonderful dog. Uh, Do not expect dramatic fireworks. It's a a Jim Jarmusch movie, but it's this wonderful little observational film about poetry, and it makes poetry interesting, which is uh, uh, something that's, I think, very hard to do in a movie. And it's also about sort of the poetry of everyday life. I thought it was very, very good. That is Patterson, available on Amazon Prime on June 22nd.
1: All right. How about two listener recommendations?
0: Our first comes from John in Denver. He writes, Hey guys, love the show. Upon listening to the most recent episode, a recommendation immediately came to mind. My recommendation going sort of along the theme of unlikely duos and noir is Clouseau's Diabolique from 1955. I first saw this in college in a film class about 10 years ago and it has stuck with me to this day. The suspense that is created is like nearly no other. And that bathtub scene, my God, the bathtub scene. But warning, don't look up the Criterion Blu-ray cover art unless you want it to be spoiled, but seriously, this film is amazing. Not sure if you guys have talked about it on the podcast before or not, but I believe it is streaming on FilmStruck. Uh, that is Diabolique. I don't think we've ever talked about Diabolique on mm. the show. It's a it's a good I don't film. It's we have I've, I've only seen it one time. I think I saw it either in film school or around that time as well, and I don't think I've seen it since then. I need to uh, I need to revisit it sometime. So thank you for that recommendation, John from Denver. Our next recommendation comes from Joseph, who says, I just discovered literally within the last hour, a Netflix show called Samurai Gourmet. It's apparently based on a comic book or graphic novel or whatever you kids are calling them these days about a newly retired man who, while out on a stroll one day, is blocked by a train from his normal path and wanders into a tiny restaurant and, overwhelmed by his unexpected meal, decides to explore and conquer all of the gastronomic delights he has denied himself for so many years, accompanied by an imaginary samurai warrior counterpart, alter ego, whom only he can see. Uh, all of that doesn't really matter. It's it's just a framing device for some of the most intimately sensuous scenes of food preparation and consumption ever committed to film. Do not watch the show on an empty stomach. That's from Joseph. Samurai Gourmet. I've never heard of this show either. It sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I also want to say the name like Don Pardo used to say all the samurai shows on Saturday Night Live. Now it's time for Samurai
1: Gourmet. All right. Well, with that in mind, uh, one from your My List.
0: Uh, You gave me number six. Number six on my My List is Riverdale Season 1. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The plot. Wow. Excitement. I haven't actually watched any
1: of it, but I love that it's on your My
0: List. (laughs) Yeah. While navigating the troubled waters of sex, romance, school, and family, teen Archie and his gang become entangled in a dark Riverdale mystery. A lot of the people I follow on Twitter like this show. They call it Hot Archie, who I'm not going to use the word they use, but... uh, Hot Archie, who, let's just say, um, has intimate relations. Uh, yeah, I just thought it's something maybe Mel and I might watch together at some point. So that's why I put it on here. That is Riverdale Season 1. <laughs> Allison, let's talk about our options for our next episode. We have three films. Uh, they are all Can alumni. Do I have that right?
1: Yes, they are from... 2015, 2016, and 2017, not necessarily in that order.
0: Right, right. Uh, I believe the first one is the film from 2017. Uh, It is Okja, available on Netflix on, was it June 28th, I believe?
1: Yes, June 28th.
0: June 28th. This is the new Bong Joon-ho film. It's a pretty big deal. The new Bong Joon-ho film is being made uh, on Netflix um, the plot description here says meet Mija, a young girl who risks everything to prevent a powerful multinational company from kidnapping her best friend, a massive animal named Okja. Okja is like a super pig. That's actually how they describe, uh, this creature in the film. Super pigs. They're like genetically modified pigs. So they're huge and extra delicious. You also have, uh, Tilda Swinton and Jake Gyllenhaal giving, A performance for the ages. Let's put it that way. Allison and I have both already seen the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is plenty, plenty, plenty to discuss here. So much to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Not just Jake Gyllenhaal, though that maybe could be a a theme we might want to pursue, the Gyllenhaal. But that is option number one. It's a strong option. I think it's going to be the front runner here. It's going to be tough to top. Oakja on Netflix on June 28th.
1: Okay, our second film is definitely the least well-known of these, but I'm curious to see who's going to come out for it. It is Chronic, which is also streaming on Netflix. Netflix, which was, of course, uh, a big um, source of mm, divisiveness at the Cannes Film Festival this year. Uh, This film is from Michelle Franco, and is about uh, a hospice care nurse played by Tim Roth, and this one was in competition in 2015 at Cannes and actually won the best screenplay prize and then went on to kind of vanish from sight. Uh, I know it got a theatrical release, but I don't think anyone even talked about it. So this would be our time to talk about it and to maybe talk about films about work, because this is very much a film about that, um, And, uh, you know, we can take a look to see, like, what is so intriguing about the screenplay here that uh, gets someone to, uh, to to get this kind of acclaim and then to vanish into nothing. That is Chronic, your second option. It is available on Netflix right now.
0: We've already mentioned option number three. I just talked about it a few minutes ago. It is Patterson on Amazon Prime, the new Jim Jarmusch film, a lovely, lovely film. There's plenty to talk about uh, for this movie as well. I'm I'm assuming, Allison, you have seen it already as well. I right? have seen it, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you won't have any suspense about whether we liked it, but I think there's plenty that, again, that we could discuss about this movie um, and there's lots of potential themes we could do here. We could do Jarmusch, we could do poetry, um, or poets, um, or just writers. Um, lots of, lots of very intriguing options. And it's a lovely film that, whether it wins or not, I think is uh, definitely worth your time. So that's option number three Patterson, available on Amazon Prime.
1: All right. Well, now we turn things over to you. Which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spawning Streaming Video Units? Uh, If you want, you can send your pick to SVU at filmspawningsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll at the bottom of the page at filmspawningsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, June 26th at noon Eastern Time. Uh, And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is FilmSpottingSVU. If you're not following us already, why are you not? Uh, And you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out on Tuesday, July 4th.
0: FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the show. The film spotting Remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.Bandcamp.com We will be back in two weeks with more movie and TV recommendations, and the can alum review you pick but in the meantime follow us on twitter at allison wilmore and at matt singer and follow the show at film spotting svu that's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from svu listeners and don't forget you can also follow us on facebook as well for film spotting svu i'm matt singer and
1: i'm allison wilmore thanks for listening